welcome to your best riding life, an extension of the Blue Ridge Mountains Christian Riders Conference held in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina. I'm your host, Linda Goldfarb. Each week, I bring you tips and strategies from experts in the riding and publishing industry to help you excel in your craft. I am so glad you're listening in today. Today, we're sharing writing for film and television. And our industry expert is writer-producer Brian Bird. Let me tell you a little bit about Brian. Brian is co-creator and executive producer of the top-rated Hallmark Channel series, When Calls the Heart. Now prepping its ninth season. I hope you're as excited as I am about this, folks. And he's the executive producer of the family drama, Mystic now in its second season of production. He has written and or produced two dozen films, including The Heart of Man, The Case for Christ, Captive, Not Easily Broken, The Ultimate Life, and Bhopal, along with nearly 350 episodes of television, including Touched by an Angel, Step by Step, and Evening Shade. He is currently developing five new films, Northern Lights, Life After Heaven, The Story of Everything, The Dream King, and The Monarch. His most important production to date is his 40-year marriage to wife Patty and their five children. I think that is a full life. Welcome, Brian Bird, to your best writing life. Thank you, Linda. Great to be with you. So good to have you here Brian, as a first-time guest on Your Best Writing Life, I enjoy giving our listeners a little peek behind the curtain into the life of our industry expert. So I'm going to ask you, what interesting fact can you share with us that we may not read in your bio? Well, that's really sweet of you to ask. And, you know, I think of all these um, amazing, you know, experiences that God has given me over the years with film and TV and and but I still go back to my family uh, when I think of the most important things in my life. And I'm about to become a grandfather for the first time. <laughs> so, That's yeah, my my son Taylor and his wife Maggie are any day now going to give birth to a little baby girl, grandbaby girl. And uh, so I'm thrilled about that. And uh you know, that's that will show up someday in the bio, probably in the family tree. But as of right now, it's uh, it's a fr- it's a fresh production out of the uh, sort of out of the bird family works, and so I'm excited about that. We're getting it hot off the press here. There you go. All right. Well, let's dive into our content: writing for film and television. The first thing I'd like to ask you: what must-haves does a film or TV producer look for that moves a manuscript from the slush pile to the hey, let's take a look at this pile? That's a great question. And, um, you know, I don't know that it's incredibly different from what you what, you know, our listeners who are, you know, authors and and writers of other kinds of content might experience. But those first handful of pages of any script are sort of make or break. You, You know, you have to capture the reader. And what I mean by that is, you know, authors, their ultimate audience is the reader. Right. All those fans that they have of their books and and their projects, you know, their written projects. Right. But in the world of film and TV, the first audience 
for a film, you know, or a TV project is the studio or those networks that are going to read that script for the first time. Mm -hmm. And before it can get to the eyeballs of the audience out there, either on the big screen or on, on TV screens or on their, on their phones, because <laughs> right. that's how people are watching everything nowadays. The first audience is that initial read that you're going to get from those buyers, essentially. So you sort of have to clear several hurdles. And I think that, you know, authors obviously have to do that same thing for editors, for publishers, for agents, when they're trying to sell their manuscripts. So it's not so different there. But you know, our ultimate audience is the one that could possibly see it on the screen. But the initial audience is those people that people that have to, you know, look at that script or that uh, screenplay or teleplay and say, wow, I want to I want to make this right. Mm. And so we have to get the reader initially to fall in love, you know, by probably not much past page 10 and hopefully by page five, <laughs> to be honest with you. You know, you have to get that that reader to fall in love and to be so captivated by the world that you're creating, you know, that the terraforming that you're doing, the world building that you're doing, but also fall in love with the, with the characters that you're creating. And, you know, so I would say that that's number one. And, you know, unlike with a with a manuscript for a for a book project, a, you know, say a piece of fiction or even nonfiction in a book manuscript, a screenplay is a different format. It's a different way to experience a literary read, right? You're seeing stage directions. You're seeing description of scenes. You're seeing slug lines for different scenes that you're going to read about. You're seeing character cues right before you see the dialogue. So the structure of a screenplay is different than, you know, like say reading a novel, but it still has to read like a novel. It still has to break through people's noise, cultural noise barrier and penetrate their hearts, just like a novel is going to have to do. You know, if you're trying to take your manuscript out to an editor or to a, an agent to get a sale or to a publisher to get a sale, you're trying to do the same thing. You're trying to have them fall in love with the world that you're building as soon as possible. And if it takes too long, they're probably going to put that script down and not read it anymore. You know, it's got to be a page turner. It's got to keep people engaged at a high level right from the get-go. And, um, you know, the way I often say it to other screenwriters is, or aspiring screenwriters is, I hate to put this pressure on you, but every time up to the plate, you have to hit it out of the park. <laughs> you yeah. know, a single, a double, even a triple off the wall is just okay. But, you know, that first impression is everything. And if you don't make that first impression, you know, chances are you're going to have to go to the next place and try to make an impression there. And so, you know, hitting it out of the park every time up to the plate is what the goal is for each, you know, script you turn in, for each script you write. And yeah, it's hard. It, that's hard, but it's absolutely essential. That's good because we do need to know, right? This is not just the visual in the mind of the reader who's reading the book. 
this becomes everything. We are literally turning the words into a visual creation and with sound and with, you know, all the crescendos, everything that it needs to have. So it's got to knock them out of the park. Is there a topic that you're like, you know what, we have seen so much of this. It's almost don't send me a script on this. Is there something that you're like, man, we've almost worn this topic out or in the the same breath, is there something you really want to see that you get excited about? Well, here's the thing. You don't have to ask me about this. All you have to do is go to one of the streaming platforms and see what's there Mm -hmm. um, to know what not to do, (laughs) Um, to be honest. You know, the, and I would say you know, I'll just be really honest with you. You know, Wind Calls the Heart is a hit. We have three and a half million people watching the show every week that it's on. For the first time ever in season eight, we beat the zombies in the ratings. We beat The Walking Dead, which, right. you know, which we've been trying to do for years. And we finally accomplished that. And here's the thing. The reason it's successful is not because Michael or I are geniuses or the rest of our our team, John Tinker, our head writer th- this last year, you know, we have a great team of people making the show. There's 150 people that work on the show, right? Wow. And everybody is part of the process of, you know, bringing these scripts to life and putting them up on their feet. But we're not geniuses. What I mean by that is that the reason why I believe this show is so successful is that nobody else is doing it. Mm right? You can't yes. find this show anywhere else on television. I mean, there's a few maybe, you know, comps to what we're doing, but most everything else is zombies, vampires, crystal meth dealers, mafiosos, dead bodies, and everything dripping with as much cynicism as possible. Mm. That's that's everything that's out there right now, right? right. Here along comes a, a show about love, hope, faith, and community, and people who care about each other. And it's a hit. Well, it's a hit because people are starved to death for that kind of content and nobody else is doing it, right? We're not geniuses. We're just very blessed to have had great timing. God, you know, has put favor on what we're doing. And, you know, we think we're pretty good at what we do, but it's a fairly modestly budgeted show that we have to do. We have to recreate you know, the 1910s, you know, and 20s in this show, which is kind of hard to do on a budget, but we've been able to figure out how to do that. Right. And if you have said this before, if you if you find an island full of starving people and you bring them food, they will love you. Mm. It's, it's not much more complicated mm. than that. So how that answers your question is, don't give us what you see out there. Give us something new. Give us something different. Find a content that, that is different. And, you know, I wear faith and family in my work as a badge of honor. It's not the hippest thing in the world. It's not the, the coolest thing in the world. It's not edgy. It doesn't win Emmy awards, you know, like some of the more edgy kind of content does. I could care less because I know there's a massive audience out there that starved to death for this kind of content. So we lean into what nobody else is doing. And I think that's the key. Now, maybe that's hard to find. I, I don't disagree with that challenge, but it's possible to find content that penetrates the heart in such a way as 
you either uplift people, you make them gasp, you make them cry, you make them laugh also. My goal is to, to help them feel better about the world. That's my goal. And feel better about themselves and feel, feel better about their purpose in the world and their maker. And I care less what the industry thinks about it. They, they only, you know, the industry is only going to care about the success and the numbers, right? Well, right. they will put, put pretty much anything on that drives the business, drives the numbers. And we know that there's a massively underserved audience and we serve them. So that would be my 36,000 foot piece of advice for aspiring writers of film and television. Give us what we can't get anywhere else. Nice. Excellent. My mind is just going crazy with all of this. <laughs> now, I know that you have shared with us what you look at or what producers look at that moves a manuscript from the slush pile and gives us yeah. a second glance. Are there key factors that you specifically look for in a screenplay that would be different from a book? Yes. I, I, well, I, there may or may not be different. I would hope that every writer of every novel would also do this personally. Okay. But, um, you know, I think there's something to be said for being about something, mm. right? Don't just try to be hip or cool or try to copy what seems popular. Be about something bigger. Help the audience, help the reader understand that they need to be about something bigger than themselves, right? And the way you do that is by creating protagonists, by creating heroes and heroines that are about a quest that is bigger than themselves, mm, right? Absolutely. That yes. aspires to something bigger and aspires to something virtuous, right? You know, people say, well, you know, you specialize in faith-based content. In my opinion, all stories are faith-based in a way, <laughs> That's good. And the reason I say that is because if you go back and you look at the hero's quest, the stages of the hero's journey that can be derived from even all the great myths of history, you can go back 4,000 years and study the hero's quest, right? One of the stages of the hero's journey that Joseph Campbell identified, and he was the world's leading expert on the human mythos, all of the great stories from the monomyth that are common to all cultures and all epics, all, you know, all times in history. One of the stages of the hero's journey is called, guess what? The resurrection. Wow. Think about that for a second. That means that hero's stories are all based on a concept that is inherent to the Christian faith. Yes. Right? When you look at most stories, except for maybe some very postmodern kind of stuff that lives outside of classic storytelling and classic reasoning, you, you look at most stories that live sort of are derived from the, the hero's journey. They all have a resurrection. Look at Harry Potter. Look right. at E.T. Look at The Matrix. And you can find either literal resurrection or a figurative resurrection in almost every story that's told. Right. The death and rebirth of a dream, the death and rebirth of a relationship the you know, the death and rebirth of an aspiration, whatever it is, there's always a death and rebirth in most stories. And I'll tell you why I think that is, because human beings have violin strings running through their souls and they have since the beginning of of mankind. 
And these violin strings that run through our souls are tuned to themes like courage, nobility, sacrifice, redemption, forgiveness, community. Those same strings, and there's probably 15 other virtues that you can talk about that those strings are tuned to. And as storytellers, when we pluck those strings, no matter where we go, no matter what country, what period in historical period we're from, those strings are the same strings in all human beings, right? Mm. Yes. That means that the humankind was wired for resurrection. We were wired for the Jesus story. We are wired for the resurrection story. And if you go back and look at the Epic of Gilgamesh, right, which was 2,000 years before Jesus from ancient Samaria, guess what? The hero, Gilgamesh, dies and is resurrected in that story. Well, does that mean that Christianity ripped off Gilgamesh? No. What it means, like what C.S. Lewis tells us, that Jesus and Tolkien as well, Jesus is the myth that became true, Mm. right? He's the fulfillment of all that hunger in human souls from the beginning of time. So story is food. It's soul food. It always has been. Even going back to the caves, right? You know, those cave paintings that we would see on the walls that were, have been discovered on the walls of, you know, prehistoric man. You know, you know what I think those came from? You know why those are there? Because cave children at night when they're being put to bed, ask their cave father or mother, tell me a story. And so they would put the stories on the wall. I really believe that because the human soul is wired for story. We're starved to death for story. And we as writers are in the legacy from the great author of everything, right? Think about that. Truly, truly. How did God deliver his revelation to mankind? In a book, Mm. in a big fat novel. And his story is being history, his story, history, is being told in a great universal construct, a great manuscript through time and space is being written for all of us. And we're all part of the story too. So if we are made in the image of the author of everything, and think about it, God spoke, God wrote the world into existence. He communicated Mm the universe into existence. Those were words that were used, right? Those were, those were writings in a way. That's how everything was made. We are made by an author (laughs) and Mm -hmm. we who are authors, we who have the tiny, a tiny strand of that creative DNA in us, because we're made in the image of the author of the universe. We are in the legacy. We're storytellers. We're supposed to be part of that legacy. So, Story is food, and redemption and resurrection are in all stories. So all stories are because the human being is hungry for redemption. And even if the authors have no clue that they're doing it, they're doing it because they're wired for it. There are plenty of people that, you know, don't aren't connected to God. They don't know from God or they've rejected God. That doesn't mean that they're not made in his image, too. And then they're, they're just doing what they were made to do, right? They just don't know it. And they don't get the fulfillment of knowing that they're in the legacy of the great author. 
Mm. No, this is good. Even the concepts of what you shared that we all have those violin strings. I wrote violin strings of virtue. And that is a key factor. If someone is going to watch a film, if they're going to stay connected to a television show, those are the things that are going to hold them in place, not just transient concepts. It's truly what is touching a part of them that they were created to experience, which we know that it is our connection with Jesus Christ. We know that it is our faith in him as a creator. I love how you said it, as the author. And so when we bring a screenplay or when we are writing, it's looking at those elements. They must be there because that is what's going to capture, hold on to, and actually have the viewer waiting I think about this with the the shows that you have, the next season's coming out and they're waiting with anticipation. What is happening next? Right. So this is good question. How does a book get turned into a film project? And I'm not asking, you know, for the massive details when you said, you know, you have 150 some odd people working on a particular project. That's not even behind or even there's got to be so many more there. But when a book is looked at, the manuscript is looked at, and you say, hey, I really like this book. I think we could turn this into a film project. What process do you look at? Yeah. Well, here's the thing. We all, you know, have these favorite books, right, that have been turned into movies. And I would say most of the time people are not happy, (laughs) right, with the adaptation, that takes place. It's, you know, if in some cases they're very happy, you know, the right. people who liked Harry Potter, they're pretty happy with the movie adaptations. But in most cases, the readers of a beloved book are pretty disappointed by the Because it's not everything that, they, that their imagination saw it to that, be. That, that's the ticket there, right? So here, here's, the, here's the rub. You know, for readers of books, that book comes alive in our individual imagination. Think about that. If a million people read a book and love it, that story first came alive in the the imagination of the author, right? Who could see it happening in their imagination as they were writing it. But then each person with their own filters and their own either vivid imagination or limited imagination— they're seeing it in their brain come alive in a different way than everybody else, right? Everybody's got this individual experience with a, with a world coming alive in their minds. So how are we as filmmakers supposed to compete with a million different visions mm. of what this book and this story are, right? It's very challenging. And that's why I think you have a lot of people say, oh, the book, you know, the movie's not as good as the book. Because it's almost impossible to live up to those individual experiences. So the goal for me, when I'm actually talking to an author who were going to adapt their book into a movie or a TV show, my advice to them is to imagine this project as a completely different endeavor. Turning a book into a movie or a book series into a TV series, the TV series is a completely different you know, endeavor. It just is. The the media project has to be looked at on its own merits. 
we have to fall in love with a movie or a TV series on their own merits, not not as a not measured against the book. Because, for instance, Little House on the Prairie. Well, there were several books in the Little House series, but Little House on the Prairie is one book. There were 209 episodes of Little House on the Prairie. They went past the book after a couple of episodes, if you think about it, right? There's not enough book there to sustain 10 seasons of a TV show. It's just not there. The goal for us when we're making a TV show is to capture the heart and soul of a book and the spiritual quality of a book and be faithful to that and sustain that but we're world building upon the foundation of that book, right? And, you know, after nine seasons of One Calls a Heart, there's hardly much that you can recognize about the original book in this TV series. But I believe, you know, most Hardys, the people that love One Calls the Heart, see the, the spiritual quality and the, that we're faithful to the, you know, the spirit of Jeanette Oaks book series that was written, you know, 25 years ago. So for the author who's either trying to adapt their own book or they're they're being adapted by, you know, film writers or producers or a production company or something like that, I think the goal is to say to yourself, I'm not going to hold them to orthodoxy. Mm. You know, literary orthodoxy, right. right? But I'm going to try to see this you know, for its own merits. And to be real honest, a book series that turns into a TV series or a movie, it's good news no matter what for the author because it's going to boost their ba- their catalog sales on that book. Yes, it is. It in a is. big way, right? And we've seen that, you know, many of the projects that I've done over, over the years have been based on, you know, book series uh, or books. And all those authors have benefited. Mm. And most of them are very happy with the experience and with the, you know, what it was like to go through that experience. But just know that your one book, if it's turned into a movie or TV series, it's a big win if the movie holds on to the spirit of the book, the basic core, you know, ideas in the book are there. That's a big win. And that that should be plenty for them. I think for for myself, explaining it that way gave me a huge aha. Mm. Because in essence, that is what I would want. It really is like a starter, the book. And you're taking it, you know where the author is going with it, but going into a series, going into a film, it's needed in the process and it just grows and develops into something fragrant and something beautiful and beyond the book. And as long as it holds on to that spiritual element, as long as it holds on to that core desire of the author, it would be a fabulous, fabulous. Well, and, and, and yes, and you have to sort of compare notes a little bit on this. You know, for you as the author of a, a novel, say, you're you're sitting down by yourself, you're working on this novel for several months or years even to try to get it right. You get it out to an editor or a group of editors or a publisher or an agent or a handful of people are going to experience that before it's turned into a book. 
right? Right. It's you all by yourself in the writer cave. But when you're making a book into a TV show or a movie, now you have to multiply the number of people that are involved by 100 at least, mm. right? And the amount of money being spent. So for nine seasons of When Calls the Heart, we will have spent close to $200 million wow. making those episodes. We, we will hit 100 episodes at the end of this season, this next season. Um, well, think about that. It didn't cost $100, $200 million to make a book. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and it didn't, True, involve, it didn't involve 150 people putting their heart and soul into it. It's a different enterprise. You have to look at it from that perspective and not hold too tightly. You know, if you if you can hold your content with a loose grip and trust the filmmakers. Now, I, I, I'm not going to say every filmmaker you know, is like me, that my goal is to make the author proud. My goal is to please the author. And that's been the case in you know, most everything that I've worked on. Because it's my goal. I want them to be happy because if they're happy, everybody else will be happy. If the author is happy, they're going to go out and they're going to help drive their tribe to that project, right? Their platform. And if they're not happy, they're not going to be so eager to do that. So it's in our best interest as the filmmakers to keep the author as happy as possible. It's, it's not possible to, to answer every hope and desire, but it is possible to, to answer a lot of them. That's good. If you had three tips that you could offer to, and you've given us so many more, specifically to writers who are aspiring direct, they're like, I want to write for film or TV. Right. Three tips off the top of your head where you say, then you need to consider this, 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 what would that be? So the, these tips are for not just screenwriters, but they're for all writers. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. There are a lot of people out there, God bless them, who want to be writers, right? They feel a calling in their soul to be a writer of whatever, right? Or, or a filmmaker or a screenwriter or a novelist or, you know, or people even wanting to write music, right? Or okay. paint or sculpt. This, this works for, you know, all creative endeavors. Number one, find three champions to confirm your call. And what I mean by that is, you know, we all have family and friends who love us. Yes. Right? They're biased. They're not good judges. No. You know, m my parents were proud of me for taking a little duty in the toilet. Right. Right? <laughs> That's a very low bar for praise. Right. So it's not your parents or your aunt from Albuquerque or your buddy from down the street who are going to be the best champion to judge you, to judge your work. You need to find three champions who confirm for you the calling that you think you have. Mm. There's nothing worse, nothing that breaks my heart more than going to a writer's conference and meeting with a young writer who feels called to do what they're doing, but it's clear they don't have a gift or proclivity there, right? Okay. They don't have a skill there. They, you know, I, Like I said earlier, if we're all made in the image of the author of the universe, we all have a tiny strand of that creative DNA. 
And we all should try to become the Michelangelo of that one strand, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or die trying. That doesn't mean that everybody has the writer strand or everybody has the, the sculptor strand or the painter strand or the composer strand. Everybody has a strand, but they have to identify that one strand and then become Michelangelo of that little strand of DNA. Not everybody is supposed to be a writer, right? True. That's right. It is a calling. It is a calling. So before you spend all your money, all your energy, all your life aspiring to do something, because I've met people that have been struggling for decades to try to do this because they feel like they're supposed to. And, you know, I don't I don't believe that God puts those dangles those aspirations in front of us for no reason. He doesn't do that. That's just torture if he does. <laughs> right. right. Um, I don't believe that. But I, sometimes they're mis they're misapplied or they're miss these callings can be misunderstood. So you need to find three people that have been to the wars in the prospective field that you want to go into artistically. They're veterans. They've been in the trenches. They've fought the wars already. They're scarred up. They're mi- missing eyes and limbs. And, you know, they've been, right. they've been to the deepest, darkest part of the business. If they tell you, you have a gift, then you have to do it. Then, then mm. if those people confirm for you, then you have to do it. Okay. There's no such thing as being in an echo chamber all by yourself with your calling and succeeding at that. You need it confirmed by three champions. And I, the reason I use three is because everybody has an opinion, right? Just like right. rear ends, we all have opinions. So I don't ever trust one person's opinion on anything. But if three people tell me the same thing, hmm. that's a cord of three strands. And that's not easily broken. And so you, you need to rely on champions. That's number one. Number two, don't be afraid to copy the masters. What I mean by that is I'm not saying plagiarize. That's not what I'm saying. But all art has been handed down in history through the master student model. If you, if you picture a painting class, what does a painting class look like? The, the students are all at their canvas, at their easel, and they're painting. And what are they doing? They're watching the teacher up front and the teacher is painting. And they're copying the master, but they bring themselves to the canvas in order to get better than the master. Mm. That's how all art has always been passed down. Michelangelo was in the Medici school. He was a genius, but he was in a school where he had masters and in fresco and sculpting and all of that. And he had to copy the masters, but bring himself to the medium, the media, the canvas, the the piece of granite, whatever, to in order to eclipse the master. And he did, right? He became better than them. Right. So that's how that's how art is passed down. That's how writing is passed down. What's the best writing school in history? The the world of great books, great screenplays. Read, read, read the masters, mimic them, but try to be better. Mm. So how does that how does that work for me? I keep five scripts open on my desk for every script that I write of people that have gone before me that are that are better than me, but I try to eclipse them 
and I pick up the script and I say, how did they get out of this scene? How did they get into the scene? What transition did they use? I'm going to do better than them, right? We all need to prime our pump with the masters. And then the third thing is something I, I mentioned earlier. Be about something bigger than yourself. Don't, this is a tricky business. Don't just copy the master in order to copy the master. Copy the master in order to say something better than him about the world. Mm, good. Right? Really, you could apply this to just about, as you said, every aspect of life. Yes. Whatever you're going to do, you can apply all three of those. Right. That is so good. Good, good, good. Quick question. You may have a quick answer. Is it more difficult to write for television film or to produce a show? So I start out as a, as a journalist first. That's I went to journalism school. and So I was a working newspaper and magazine reporter, you know, before yeah. I sort of morphed into this world, into this business. And I'm always going to be a writer first. But when you're a writer, especially in television, and you stick around for any number of years, you become a producer by default. It's kind of the ranks of the military that you every year you come back to a show that you've been on before, you get a promotion to the next rank up. And with that new rank, it comes with new responsibilities, additional responsibilities on top of your writing responsibilities, right? So you sort of learn how to produce along the way. Now, some writers don't want to touch that. I personally love producing, but I had to learn it, right? I, I always felt pretty confident as a writer, but I had to learn the rest of the business. And part of the reason why now I don't I don't write anything I don't get to produce or help produce also. And the reason for that is I don't want other people to screw up what I've done. <laughs> uh, to be honest, I, you know, and that doesn't mean that I have all the answers. You know, it takes a lot of brain power to get these things right. Uh, but I still want to, you know, I'm the original architect of the building. So, but I'm also part of the general contractor company that makes the building, Right. You, you drop the blueprints and then you stick around to help erect everything. And so it, for me, it's just important to be, to be a voice at the table, to have a seat at the table of the, of the decision makers when, when a project gets made. I'm not, I'm not interested in just handing off a, a script to somebody and then having them go take it, you know, and, and, you know, take it from there. I want to have a seat at the table. And so is it harder? Um, no, I, I would say the writing is still the the hardest part because it has to be right. right? Mm -hmm. You have to get it right. And for somebody to invest millions of dollars in your script, to put it up on its feet, to take it from the page to the stage, you have to make those scripts right. And so that part is still probably the the part that requires the most brain cells uh, mm -hmm. but it but all the all aspects of, of building the building are important so you know and all the craftsmen that have to come alongside of you and help erect that skyscraper are just as important to the process and uh, I just you know I want to be the part of the power team that puts up the building great answer great answer and I wrote that down I, I wrote your writing has to be right 
to take it from the page to the stage. Right. I like it. Very good. You have brought it today. <laughs> Brian, you brought it. I'm I'm well, going, I, okay, I want more. <laughs> this is this well, is we, good. I we love can do a part two sometime if you want to, but yeah. I, I I I make a living writing dialogue and mm. When I'm being interviewed, I write my own dialogue in the moment. So that <laughs> it's just, you know, something you learn over time how to do. It, it is, and you do it well. So as we're closing, as we're closing today, I have a question. I've, I've been asking this of many of my guests of late. Brian Bird, what brings you joy? Well, beyond just loving on people in letting them love on me. Um, and that, that is the most important thing. You know, we, in our lives, you, you know, when people ask me, well, how do you, how do you communicate your faith in your work? And, you know, my attitude is I want to stir up great questions. I want to stir up hearts and soul cravings by asking great questions. And I know that when I do that right, people can be haunted by those questions and spend lots of time thinking around the water cooler. How do I answer that? And it gives me great joy to know that I have stirred up, you know, soul cravings in people. You know, if we, as people of faith, believe we have the cure for everything, and we do, <laughs> right? The cure for everything in the universe, we know what that is. Right. So that is the most precious cargo in the universe for us to take to people and to hand to people. It can be put on the page. Yes, you can put it on a page. You can put it in a TV show or a movie, but it's best delivered hand to hand, person to person, flesh and blood to flesh and blood. That's the best way to deliver it, right? Because a picture on a wall, a picture on a TV screen, uh, words on a page can trivialize that. But when it's hand-delivered to people, when the, the cure for everything is hand-delivered to people, that is the most powerful transaction in the universe. So that is what gives me the most joy in life. Wow. I'm getting a visual here. It must be because of your ability to dialogue so well. <laughs> so good. So good. Thank you so much, Brian Bird, for taking time to be here with us on Your Best Writing Life. And folks, I'm going to have um, where you can find Brian on Twitter, on Facebook, Instagram. We'll have all of that, of course, in our show notes. And Brian, I know you said that you wanted to... Uh, offer something to our listeners today. So what, what are we going to get from you? Yeah. So your friend and mine, Michelle Cox, um, and I wrote a series of three when God calls the heart devotionals. Mm -hmm. And, um, we, we did that sort of based on when calls the heart, the show, the idea was when people were watching the show and they wanted a deeper dive into some good takeaways, some good learnings, you know, from the show, we then made a devotional, made three devotionals, actually, um, spinning off from the episodes of the show. And then we also shared some personal insights along the way, along with asking questions and providing some good scripture 
to, to folks. And so I'm happy to provide to all your listeners a PDF of one of those devotional chapters. Well, that would be fantastic. So we'll make sure that you have the link to that as well, folks, in our show notes. And Brian, just thank you again for being here with us. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be with you, Linda, and, and with your listeners. And, and uh, let's do it again sometime. I'd enjoy it. And thank you, friends, for joining us. Please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review because you know what I always say. What you have to say matters as much as what you have to write. This is Linda Goldfarb, and I look forward to being here with you next time on Your Best Writing Life.